That, that was a great talk. Um, I'm Neil Skolnick. Um, I'm your next speaker, but not your this speaker. I'm moderating this session. And, and, and those are some wonderful uh, tips for those of us in primary care. And let me ask you some of the questions that have come in from, from the audience. And um, the one that floated to the top was, uh, what do we do with resistant depression, not that has uh, mania or hypomania attached to it, but what's your, what are the main things you'd suggest we do coming out the chute when someone doesn't respond to that initial SSRI that we commonly prescribe? So tomorrow at 10.50, I'm talking, the talk is called Beyond the SSRI, and that will answer that question. But in brief, what do we do when the SSRI doesn't work? We do not have a good algorithm for it, but I will tell you probably what you already know, which is the following. You can add Wellbutrin or you can substitute Wellbutrin. Our newer medications are Trintilex, which is very helpful for people that are disorganized and not focused as a result of their depression. Trintilex is problematic for people who are sensitive to GI distress, so it's not a perfect drug. We have Remeron, which is helpful if you need to help people with their appetite or help them sleep. That will help. You can switch SSRIs. So if somebody's on Prozac, you can switch them to Celexa. Sometimes that helps. Why does one person respond to Prozac and another person responds to Celexa? We have no idea. We are completely guessing. We cannot tell who will respond to what. Our best indication of knowing response to treatment is family history. If we have a biological relative who's responded to a certain medication, that's our best guidance for going forward. So the, the STAR-D study, which had mm -hmm. this whole algorithm, mm -hmm. essentially boils down to what you just said. Right, um, right. The yeah. STAR-D Star study showed what do you do after the SSRI, and it's used, you can add Wellbutrin, you can substitute Wellbutrin, you can add Buspar, you can substitute Buspar. Basically, whatever you do, it was of equal efficacy. No matter what the next step was, everybody did the same. And we still lose a third of people. No matter what we do, they don't get better. Those are the treatment refractory depression. Those are the folks you recommend for TMS, for ketamine, for Spravato, for uh, you know, basically a study. Now psilocybin is being studied. I mentioned Charlie Grobe for terminal cancer, but psilocybin is also being studied for uh, PTSD and for anxiety, along with MDMA. And you mentioned ketamine, and one of the questions here was about that. Is that something that we ought to, or some of us ought to be, um, be able to write, training to write, or is it something that you see more as a referral center type of medicine? No, ketamine is in your future. Spravato is in your future. It's going to be a primary care drug. It's going to be a primary care drug because it requires the two to four hour monitoring afterwards. And most of us psychiatrists who work in offices like myself, you know, we can't have a patient sit there for two to four hours. I have no staff, for example. But you need a staff to monitor the two to four hours. So it is in your future. And in terms of when, is it next year or five years? I don't know, but it's coming. It's interesting. It sounds in that way like subutamine for opioid withdrawal that... that because of the need, there's going to have to be a primary care response. Right. Um, exactly. There's a lot of questions on depression, and I think that's because that's what we take care of a lot. And, and one of the tough questions is, um, how do we help uh, patients' families protect their loved one who is depressed from themselves? 
You mean in terms of, in terms of I, self injury? I, I'm, I'm reading into yeah. this, but you know, it, from from suicide. So that one of the things that's most I, I think fearful and devastating to families, right, is, is, the, uh, is when a suicide happens in a loved one and the fear, what do they do? Now they have a, a loved one who is very depressed. They're seeing us for treatment. Perhaps they, they're having some counseling. They get an SSRI. We've asked about suicidal ideations, but how do we advise family regarding well, this? First and foremost is suicide precautions, and I know I say this and it's obvious, but I just experienced this this year as something that wasn't obvious. But the obvious point is remove all lethal weapons from the house. Lethal weapons include guns, include knives, include pills. They cannot have access. That access is very, very scary. I can't tell you how many suicides I've experienced in my professional life. And I'm like, how did they have access? You knew they were depressed. You, you, they had just been hospitalized for depression and for a previous suicide attempt. How did they have access? I mean, I don't say it in that tone, but that's what I'm thinking. Like, oh my God, they overdosed on opiates? How did they get the opiates? But the opiates were accessible to them. So that is the first and foremost, is you need to have the discussion and you need to document the discussion that you've told them to remove all suicidal potential objects. So I repeat, guns, knives, pills. So is that, when you say knives, even kitchen knives? Yes. and Because yes. I think people often don't think about that sort of access. Yes, because self-injury is, is, is the beginning. You know, self-injury, the most likely cause of a, most likely way to predict a suicide is previous attempts. And so, you know, self-injury is not suicidal, not suicidal behavior necessarily, but it could be. And you just want to minimize self-injury because it becomes a habit, and that habit can, can go the wrong direction. It's going down the rabbit hole. Another question about depression uh, was uh, CBT has a good evidence base, that, um, but other than CBT with regard to counseling, are there types of counseling that, that you recommend? And I'll throw in, in addition to that, um, should we be checking in with our, have our patients checking in and telling us what type of counseling they're receiving? Because clearly there's CBT, evidence-based counseling, and other counseling that isn't doing much. That's correct. I mean, the problem with therapy is that it's very hard to determine quality. And quality control is extremely difficult. And I'm old school. In the old school way, you know, the primary care doctor would ask the patient, who is your therapist? They'd write down the therapist. They would write a note to the therapist. The therapist would write a note. And they'd have notes in the old days of notes back and forth about how the patient was progressing. And so when the patient came to the primary care doctor, the primary care doctor would say, well, I've been talking with your therapist, and I know you've been focusing on the death of your mother or something like that. And so there would be that sense of teamwork. And, and I know that's old school, but it still makes a lot of sense to me that you basically, you write down the name of the therapist, you communicate with the therapist, and you talk to the therapist and to the patient about how their therapy is going. Do you think you need a new therapist? Do you think you're going in a good direction? Are they helping you? Again, this is all old school, but still helpful. Yeah, I think it's very hard now. Often we don't know the therapist yeah. because someone can only see a restricted number of people due to their uh, right. insurance, so it, it, it's very challenging. Uh, another, uh, the other part of that question was when we are trying to talk to our patients uh, and, and what is your therapist doing uh, for you, what type of things are you going over, 
how do you recommend, it's pretty clear when someone's getting CBT-related therapy, but when they're not, should we be saying, mm, you should see someone else, or how, how, do you how do you approach that? Well, the way I approach it is I basically sort of try to get a pulse from the patient. Like, how do you think it's going? You know, how are you feeling about it? Do you, how do you feel when, after each session? You know, how often do you go? Do you cancel? Does the therapist cancel? Or you have a regular schedule? Do you look forward to going? You know, basically trying to get a pulse. You know, it's kind of like when your kid's dating someone. You know, like, is this the right person? How are mm. you doing? You know, not that they let you ask those questions. But, it, but, but, but that's what you want to know is, is, you know, how, how do you think it's going? And rely on the patient's subjectivity. It's interesting. I, I've actually had times where I've kind of, definitely told patients, I think you need to find someone else. And, and I think it's important that we monitor this. Because I had a patient just two months ago who came in with a young man with an anxiety issue, was trying to get his driver's license, had a bit of an issue because he was in an accident when he was five years old. And the therapist told him to be using mar medical marijuana <laughs> in order to decrease anxiety around driving. Right. I, when it's, when it's outrageous like that, it's easy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're, you're right. And, but, and then there are times where it's not quite as easy, but I, I, th I think we still struggle with that, that issue. Another question around, uh, around depression and anxiety, why do you think we don't use non-pharmacologic means more, and should we, things like Tai Chi, yoga, and exercise? I, I think those are wonderful, and we should use non-pharmacological agents first, and if not first, then in conjunction with medication. So I am a huge believer. But I think that as clinicians, when we recommend Tai Chi, you know, the patient does Tai Chi, and then our, we're not in the job anymore. When we give a medication, <laughs> we're still in the game. It's like, well, I, you need me for the medication. You need me to prescribe it. And I think we have a narcissistic high. <gasps> I know, I use the N-word. But we have a narcissistic high from being the one who's saving the patient from their depression because we're prescribing it. If we recommend Tai Chi and they go Tai Chi, they're going to forget they, that we recommended it, and they're just going to say Tai Chi is wonderful and it's really helped them. And what, what gratification do we get out of that? That's what I call the narcissism check. We have to check up how much are we are narcissistically involved in the patient getting better. That, that's, that's wonderful. Um, how about depression during pregnancy? Another thing that's very common and I think that many of us find very challenging because our OB colleagues are not comfortable treating it. Clearly it leads to worse pregnancy outcomes and the data on the medicines is very confusing. Right, so I have a talk that's called Medicines for the Female Mind. If you want to write down in your evaluations what other talks might you be interested in, medicines for the female mind. Because, of course, as a woman and as a woman physician, we are not thought about very much as patients, even now, even in 2020. That women are ignored, like somehow we're supposed to be happy in pregnancy and we're pregnant and that's what we're made to be and so therefore nobody can be depressed in pregnancy, it's not acceptable. So having said all that, medication in pregnancy is mostly safe in first and second trimester. So I'm talking about the SSRIs, first and second trimester, Prozac, Zoloft, it's probably fine. However, in third trimester, it's not fine. It's not fine in third trimester because the baby will be born with the medication in their system and the baby will go through SSRI withdrawal 
when the baby is born. And this will create a jittery a baby that may ha have trouble with attachment and may have to stay in the NICU an extra day before the baby comes down. And we know an extra day in the NICU may not sound like much to us as clinicians, but to parents, that's a long day in the NICU, and we want to prevent that. So what I tell pa parents and, and patients and pregnant women, that as long as they come off of it third trimester, we're cool. There's no teratogenic things to worry about. It doesn't cause problems with organ, organ formation in first trimester. Any hints how to have someone come off of an, an SSRI during that third trimester of pregnancy uh, without falling apart? Right, so it's obviously a slow taper. Obviously, they know at the moment they're pregnant that they need to get off a third trimester, so you've set expectations. You obviously encourage them to go to therapy throughout their pregnancy along with the medication so that when the third trimester does come, they have a buffer from coming off the medication so they're already bonded with their therapist. And that they, you know, tell their loved ones that the third trimester might be particularly hard because they have to come off their medications. And they can go right back on their medications as soon as the baby's born. You know, that's interesting. As, as you're saying that, I recognize how true that is to at the beginning of pregnancy, really set things up, have a therapist in place. And uh, I can say I'm not sure I always do that, and I just learned something very important to think ahead about. Um, <clears throat> changing gears a little bit away from depression, which is very common, to something else that is also common but we probably don't hear about as much. Uh, how can you approach a young ad adult with intermittent marijuana psychosis who does not believe he has a problem? He believes marijuana helps him with sleep and depression. And I don't think we have to go as far as intermittent marijuana psychosis, but uh, heavy marijuana use we ask, I'm not sure we always get honest answers. Sometimes parents will ask us, and typically that young adult does not see a problem. Right, so again, you know, it's motivational interviewing and typical of patients that have substance abuse problems that don't want to deal with their substance abuse is same with weight loss. You know what I mean? It's the ice pick model of approach to patients, which is, you know, you do this slowly, 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 maybe they'll come around to see it, maybe they won't. But the idea is to say some of my patients who have big time marijuana use get intermittently psychotic. Has that ever happened to you? Some of my patients who have high marijuana use have low motivation and have terrible apathy as a result of the marijuana. Do you think that's going on for you? Some of my patients who take marijuana to help them sleep, it does help them sleep, but eventually it stops helping them sleep or they have to up the dose to help them sleep. Has that happened to you? You know, do, do you think your relationships are impacted because of your marijuana use? Do you think that your hobbies or things that you like doing, you're doing less because of your marijuana use? So again, you plant the seed for them to think about it in a kind of questioning way, not an accusatory and a non-judgmental way. It's a tough issue. Um, I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to ask questions from a number of different kind of topics because I, I think they're all relevant for us. And we know that uh, patients who have a history, uh, young adults and uh, older adults, who have a history of attention deficit have a higher incidence of substance abuse. For someone who's recovering and has a documented history of substance abuse, do you advocate being able to continue to use stimulants to treat their ADHD? Short answer is yes. 
The long answer is it's much more complicated. People with ADHD are vulnerable to becoming substance abusers, but it's not the people with ADHD that are vulnerable, it's the untreated ADHD person is subject to becoming a substance abuser. People with ADHD have very low frustration tolerance and they are wanting a quick fix. When they go on stimulants, it's not perfect, but it helps them with their frustration tolerance and it decreases the likelihood they'll become substance abusers. I say this because so many parents, you know, like the, that I've seen over the years, you know, the kid's six, they go on, they go on Concerta, they stop taking it, they kind of don't do well in school, they become addicts, and the parents blame the Concerta when the kid was six. That is sort of introducing him to the idea of being a substance addict. And that is a misunderstanding of what's going on, and again, one of the issues of prescribing medications, of which we're in a field that is as vague as I've described to you today, mm -hmm. is that it's very easy to falsely attribute things to medication. It's very easy to say that Concerta at six made this kid a drug addict at 15. It's not true, but it makes sense to the parents, and guess what? It takes the parents off the hook. It's nothing they did. It has to do with what the medication at six. So there's a tremendous desire to, to reduce it and to oversimplify what's going on. My point is ADHD is a real disability. It's a real issue that people struggle with in terms of persistence, in terms of goal-directed behavior, in terms of frustration tolerance, in terms of sitting still, in terms of focus, in terms of being able to complete tasks. As such, it requires medication usually task-dependent. It's an as-needed medication in adults. So yes, a person with a substance abuse history should still go on stimulants to help them with their ADHD. And I know that's uncomfortable for most people. Now that's, that's important to help them deal with their issues moving forward and not go back to uh, illicit drugs. Let me ask you a question. I was surprised to read recently about a relatively high usage of stimulants among medical students and residents mm -hmm. uh, in order to complete tasks. How do you tease out for someone who says, I do better on a stimulant, whether this is ADHD or someone who might be having too much to do? Right. It is, it is very, well, let me back that up. Many college students, medical students, take stimulants to help them study. It does help them study. The way they get the medications is people sell them in colleges and medical schools and all of that. Who are the people selling them? The people that get it prescribed. Hmm. So when you prescribe the medication, those become sellable drugs. And then people come and they say, I need a higher dose, not because they need a higher dose, so they have more pills so that they can sell them. And that is a known experience because the short answer, it does help people study whether you have ADHD or not. So one message that I wanna say is that when you write the prescription, I think it's very, very important to say, this prescription is only for you. It is illegal to give this medication to anybody besides you. In addition, I've gone to school for a lot of years. I've worked really hard to write, write this prescription. When you give this prescription to other people, it hurts my feelings. It seriously hurts my feelings, and that's not a good idea to hurt my feelings because I'm trying to help you. So I give them that talk. Now, I realize they still do it. I, that is, doesn't insulate me from that, but I tell them it's not okay. 
So that's one thing, is the accessibility of these medications on the street is very, very high because many of us over-prescribe them, which I'm not advocating for. But yes, is it because the medical students have too much to do? Yes. Will it help the medical students? Yes. Is there a big downside to a medical student taking 10 milligrams of Adderall to do studying? No. There's not a big downside to it. It's basically, for that medical student, it's like a cup of coffee. It's keeps in keeping them awake and they can get more done. Now, if they start to take it in huger quantities or they start to smoke it or use it with other drugs, that's a different story. Okay. Um, there was a question about insomnia. Clearly, use of these Z drugs is not particularly helpful, leads to daytime sedation. But how about melatonin? Melatonin is excellent. It's over-the-counter, as you know. It, it, uh, usually three milligrams, sometimes five milligrams. The biggest takeaway with melatonin is that because it is an over-the-counter medication, it, it, the manufacturers are regulated like a food and not a drug. And therefore, the different brands, the different manufacturers can make very different kinds of melatonin. So what I tell patients is once they find a manufacturer that works, they take the melatonin and they sleep, stick with that manufacturer. Don't switch around, don't get the lowest price, don't go to Costco if that's, but stick with the manufacturer because otherwise the melatonin will be completely different. There were a number of questions about DNA testing in order to figure out which antidepressant to use. Right, right. so let me be very clear. None of the DNA tests tell you what antidepressant to use. To be more specific, the DNA tests for liver metabolism and how people metabolize the drugs. We have fast metabolizers, ultra-fast metabolizers, and slow metabolizers. So it only gives you an idea about dosage of medication. It does not give you an idea about which medication to use. In addition to the DNA testing, I'll add on another question that wasn't asked, but there are people that do scanning and saying, you know, you have this ring of fire in your brain, and they do these PET scans or SPECT scans, and they say, see, this is a ring of fire, so you should be on Zoloft. That is completely not scientifically based. Um, let's see here. Some other very good questions. How about thyroid hormone, in this case particularly T3, to treat? Uh, resistant depression. Well, that is old school. That is from my residency, using T3 for depression. Wow. That goes way back. Yes, I mean, it, it is a reasonable treatment for depression. It, it's completely from the 80s. And then how do you figure out, how do you, what kind of dosing do you use there? Well, basically, you're not trying to make them hyperthyroid, but but you give them a very low dose of T3. It's usually an adjunctive treatment to another antidepressant. Question about bipolar disorder. Is bipolar disorder uh, hereditary? And uh, people are often very frustrated with their treatment. What do you tell them about their likelihood of success? So bipolar 1 disorder is completely different from bipolar 2 disorder. They are not, have very little in common. Bipolar 1 disorder, people have to be on medications for the rest of their lives. Most bipolar 1 patients do not want to be on medications for the rest of their lives because they will have euthymic periods where they're neither manic or depressed and wonder why do they have to be on medication. 
But from our understanding of people who have manic psychotic episodes associated with mania in their teenage years, the likelihood is they'll have another episode and that next episode could be 10 years from now or 15 years from now, but they're very high risk for another episode. So what to tell the patient, it's very hard. You just basically have to champion people and say, I know it's not fun to take a medication every day, particularly when you're asymptomatic. No one wants to take a medication when they're asymptomatic. But statistically, this is really in your best interest. Bipolar one folks are very sick. In general, you have to be incredibly alert and vigilant. They have a high suicide risk because they're very out of control when they have mania or depression. And they're, they're at risk of suicide at both ways, both their manic episodes and their depressive episodes put them at very high risk for suicide. A question, another thing that I think comes up commonly for us, geriatric patients and the use of antipsychotics for uh, essentially to control agitation in our right. older so adults. Using antipsychotics to control agitation is completely off-label. There is no evidence to support it. I know it's done all the time. You know, the antipsychotics come with a warning of cerebrovascular events, so strokes. I know you're dealing with an elderly population that could have a stroke anyway, but you're giving them a medication that is known to cause strokes. So you need to know that that warning exists and that you're dealing with a vulnerable population. So it is completely off-label. Having said that, Seroquel is usually your best choice. 25 milligrams of Seroquel for the elderly for agitation is something to think about. And Seroquel is the best choice because it has the least anti-Parkinson-like yes. side effects. Yes, it has which, the least EPS, extrapyramidal symptom yeah. side effects. You know, I found that, that area fascinating because it's one of those areas where I think the data is not consistent with what people tell us. Right. And I think why, you know, if you give an antipsychotic to a patient in a nursing home, the nurses always tell you it worked great. Right. And I suspect why is because the only time you ever give it is when someone's at their peak of agitation. Right. And if you gave them Skittles, they probably would <laughs> over yeah. the next few days. If you're incredibly agitated, right. you tend to do better. And the, the data doesn't support that efficacy. Well, that's right. People yeah. cycle out of it. Yeah. And we're always in a, you know, did we do something or were they cycling out of it? It's always the question. Yeah. The final question, I think this is one that um, actually comes up a lot. We kind of know the answer, but I, I'd love to hear from you is the safety of SSRIs long term. Does it cause brain changes, whether it's for anxiety or depression? These are medicines that we put patients on for patients who've had recurrent issues. They stay on it long term and a commonly asked question which one of you guys asked is are there any problems with that long term? So we do not think there are problems with long term SSRI use. The things we worry about are osteoporosis. There's an association, it's not causation, but it turns out people on SSRIs a long time have a higher risk of osteoporosis than those who are not. It could be because they're just more sedentary, we don't know, but that's a potential thing to think about. Otherwise, in the elderly women, SSRIs can cause hyponatremia. We don't know why, we don't know why it's elderly women, but we know that happens and can happen. But besides from the hyponatremia and the osteoporosis, long-term use seems to be very, very safe. There are drug interactions to think about, though. I mean, they, they, it does have anticoagulant properties, and it, it can affect the P450 system. So in the old days of using Coumadin, you needed to be careful when you put Prozac and Coumadin together because you could change the Coumadin levels. That was fantastic. Great talk. Wonderful Thank conversation. You. Thank, Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you.